0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 70: Perish Fire. i careful to record this introduction and monologue before I take part in the debate that will begin here in several hours uh, so that my impression after the fact of how the debate went doesn't color my monologue and and plant any illegitimate seeds before you've had a chance to listen. Uh, But in any case, today, Mike Felker from the Apologetic Front joins me uh, to moderate a debate between me and Hiram Diaz from Grassroots Apologetics, and we're going to be debating the nature of hell. Um, I'll be arguing for um, the annihilationist position, and Hiram will be arguing the traditional view. Um, I won't say any more about it. You can listen to the introduction to the debate to get more details. Um, But I will say that it is strange being five days before Christmas. It is kind of a strange time of year to be discussing this very dark and morbid um, subject. And, and it might seem a little out of place until you remember that it's not the birth of Christ that really accomplishes uh, anything. It's, it's, it's his death. It's a life that he led and the death that he died and, and his rising from the grave that um, secures our rescue as believers from hell, whatever the nature of hell Uh, Is. (laughs) Um, So I hope that during this time of year, you know, uh, you celebrate his birth. That's great. But also keep in mind that um, what he lived and died for uh, was uh, to save a people to himself, um, to rescue them from hell, um, which is, like I said, what we're going to be debating shortly. Now, I don't have any scheduled interviews or debates in the very near future. (laughs) It's the first time in a long time I think that that's that's been the case. Um, There is a I do have plans to have a couple of listeners on to join me for sort of a three-way roundtable to discuss Young Earth Creationism. Um, That'll probably take place in late January, I suspect. Um, Also, in March, I have two debates scheduled uh, between... um, both of them, actually, with an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Laurent Cleanwork. Um, Jamin Hubner will be engaging him in one debate over uh, on the topic of infant baptism. Uh, the other debate with Laurent Cleanwork was, will be with Dr. Craig Blazing, On Sola Scriptura and the authority of tradition. So those should be some good debates, but like I said, those aren't until March. Um, And and other than those debates and that uh, interview, that three-way panel with the Young Earth Creationist listeners, um, I don't have anything scheduled and so I'll probably finally be able to do some uh, some episodes by myself where I share my thoughts with you um, without a guest. Whether that is something that you look forward to or whether it's something that you'll have to sort of uh, grit your teeth and bear, you know, for a couple of months, um, I guess is uh, up to you. But in any case, uh, that's really all I want to say. I don't want to take up any more time than that. Uh, But I do want to return to the first promo in my rotation for my friend Dee Dee Warren's The Preterist Podcast.
1: Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of The Preterist Podcast where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox, way to view things such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at PreteristPodcast.com.
0: DeeDee's show is excellent. I highly recommend that you check it out. She's entertaining and at the same time, very insightful. And I think that she does a great job of advocating the eschatological view that she and I both share called preterism. Um, that is orthodox preterism and not hyper-preterism. Um, if you're not familiar with those terms, then Hey, go check out her podcast. <laughs> uh, in any case, as she said, check it, check it out at preterist or look for preterist podcast in iTunes or the zoo marketplace. I know that she probably hates that it's there. Uh, uh, but in any, anyway, definitely check those out, and um, hopefully in the near future, I will finally, after months and months and months of telling her that I would get her this, I'll finally have, get her the next installment of the Kicking Some Left Behind uh, series of her podcast. And if you're not familiar with Kicking Some Left Behind, then I would recommend that you go to the Preterest podcast and check that out as well, so you know what it is that I am um, trying to do for her. In any case, uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's debate.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Mike Felker, and I will be the moderator for tonight's debate. This debate will be between Chris State of the The Apologetics podcast and Hiram Diaz of Grassroots Apologetics and Involving Reasons. Before I introduce the participants, I would like to first provide you with tonight's debate topic and format. The topic for the debate will be in the form of a resolution. The punishment of the damned will will actually be torment forever and ever. Hiram Diaz will be arguing in the affirmative and Chris Date in the negative. The debate will open up with two 20-minute opening statements. Since Hiram Diaz is in the affirmative, he will go first followed by Chris Date. Next, we will have two rounds of 10-minute cross-examination periods for each participant. Once again, with Hiram Diaz going first in the cross-examining of Chris State and followed by Chris State cross-examining Hiram Diaz for 10 minutes. After the cross-examination period, we will have a 30-minute section for the audience questions whereby both participants will have a series of questions asked of them on behalf of those who submitted their questions to me prior to this debate. Last, we will have 10 minute closing statements, but this time, Chris Date will begin and Hiram Diaz will close the debate. At this time, I would like to share some information on both debaters. Chris Date is the host of the The Apologetics podcast and is a layperson who thinks theology and apologetics are as much for the average Joe in the pews like him as it is for the erudite in ivory towers. Having held to the traditional view of hell only a few months ago, his interview with Edward Fudge spurred him to reconsider and research the topic in depth, and today he stands nearly convinced of annihilationism or conditional immortality, the view he's defending today. Hiram Diaz is a New York native currently residing in the Pacific Northwest with his wife and children. His interests are philosophy and presuppositional and exegetical apologetics. He is currently pursuing a B.A. in literature at Lewis Clark State College and hopes to move on to seminary in order to pursue a Ph.D. in philosophy. Mr. Diaz maintains Involving Reasons, a blog that deals with theology, philosophy, apologetics, and a variety of other topics as they are related to scriptural exegesis. His blog can be found at www.involvingreasons.tk But before we delve into the debate itself, I would like to open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to delve deeply into the Scriptures and just to challenge one another in what we believe your Scriptures to teach. And I pray that not only you be glorified in this exchange through the proclamation of your truth, but that you sanctify each of us so that we may represent you in our conduct and how we treat one another as brothers in the Lord. Also, I pray that those who are listening to this exchange, who may not be sure where they stand on this issue, I ask that you give them the wisdom and discernment that we also desperately need through your spirit and coming to an accurate knowledge of the truth. But also, Lord, I pray that your glorious gospel and the kingdom will become known to those who don't know you and that you draw these ones to faith and repentance. And I ask this all in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hiram. You now have 20 minutes for your opening statement. You may begin.
2: Well, to begin with, I'd like to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for this opportunity to defend His truth, which in His mercy is revealed to me by His Word. I would also like to thank Chris for inviting me to debate this very important subject today, as I believe that one's affirmation or denial of our debate's resolution, namely, the punishment of the damned, will actually be torment forever and ever has some profound soteriological implications that cannot be overlooked. I would also like to thank my wife Brittany and my sons Aidan and Noah, as well as Port City's Reformed Baptist Church, my home church, for their prayers and advice over the past few weeks. It has been quite the time for me as I have been thinking about the salvation of my own soul by God's abundant and undeserved grace, the nature of Christ's sacrifice, and the fate of all those who will die in their sins. As I reflected on my own salvation, I rejoiced at the great mercy God has shown me in saving me from His wrath, the obedience which I lacked, Christ provided for me. And likewise, the death that I deserved to die, he died for me. So I have been able to rejoice in the fact that Christ has fully met both the punitive and the positive demands of the law of God. Where the law demanded perfect and perpetual obedience, Christ fulfilled it. And where the law demanded perfect punishment for every infraction of that law, Christ suffered it. Therefore, I rejoice in my salvation as I consider these things. However, I also felt deep sorrow for the lost who will continue in their obstinate rebellion and in the end be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels to be tormented forever and ever for their hatred of God and his righteous law. For the, del- the law demands, excuse me, the demands of the law are twofold. In the first place, it demands perfect obedience to its every precept. And in the second place, it demands perfect retributive suffering for every infraction of its precepts. And the law can neither perfectly obey the law of God and its positive demands, nor perfectly suffer its punitive demands. Therefore, they have no rest from the law's punitive demands, for they cannot perfectly suffer the wrath of God so as to merit the cessation of God's punishment of them. Christ makes this clear when he speaks of sin as debt incurred by man. In Matthew five twenty-three to 26 for instance, Christ uses both the fire of hell and the imagery of a debtor's prison when speaking of the fate of the damned. This, quote-unquote, hell of fire, is not a place that burns the wicked to non-existence, not at all. Rather, it's a prison from which no man can escape, for no man can fully satisfy the punitive demands of the law of God. If we were to state this in, the, in syllogistic form, it would be as follows. Premise 1. If one stay in prison is commensurate with the amount of debt that one owes, then one who has an infinite debt will remain in prison for an endless duration of time. Premise 2. One stay in prison is commensurate with the amount of debt that one owes. Conclusion? Therefore, one who has an infinite debt will remain in prison for an endless duration of time. The unregenerate man who is in enmity with God and his neighbor has not met the law's positive demands, but the law says you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by his failure to do so, he has incurred an infinite debt that he cannot pay. This truth is repeated in other places as well. For example, in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 18 verses 23-25, where Christ speaks of a man who is in debt to a king. This man cannot pay his debt, therefore he pleads with the king for mercy. And yet this hypocritical debtor to the king doesn't forgive his neighbors, his neighbors much smaller and, by way of implication, payable debt. Therefore, Christ concludes the parable by saying that the king, quote, in his anger delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt, unquote. The same argument is presented by God here. The amount of debt that one owes God is commensurate with the amount of time one one will spend in prison. This amount of debt for all sinners is infinite. Therefore, the prison sentence is endless in its duration. This argument is repeated once more in Luke 12:57 through 59, where the Lord God Christ explains that the one who is in debt to God will, quote, never get out until they have paid the last penny. unquote. At this point I would urge my opponent and the listeners of this debate To note some very pertinent facts, in the first place we've seen that sinners incur an infinite debt before God that can only be dealt with in one of two ways. A, God can show them mercy, or B, they can spend an eternity in the hell of fire or prison paying that infinite debt themselves, which it must be remembered they cannot do. Therefore, in the second place we have seen this, essentially, we've seen that this can essentially be reduced to two options placed before sinners. A, they can trust that Christ has met the positive and the punitive demands of the law for them. Or B, they can spend an eternity in the hell of fire, that is, the eternal prison, for they have not met the positive demands of the law, nor can they meet the punitive demands of the law. The question that lies before us, then, excuse me, is this. Can man meet any of the law's demands? If we're Christians, then we must agree with the scriptures that tell us that man cannot do all that God has commanded to do, nor can a man... Nor can a man's punishment ever come to an end, for neither can he meet the punitive demands of the law. Reprobate man, therefore, must continue to exist forever in order that the infinite debt that he owes be paid by by his infinite stay in prison, that is, the hell of fire. Therefore, the non-elect cannot be annihilated, for that would imply that they have paid off their debt, which is exactly what Christ tells us they cannot do. They will continue to exist forever, therefore, suffering the infinite penalty due them for their infinite debt that they have incurred. Yet what is this infinite penalty? Is it actually torment forever and ever yes for the scriptures tell us that the fate of the damned is that they will be cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels in matthew 25:41. and as we have seen this quote-unquote eternal punishment is likewise an eternal prison it is also however more clearly identified as a place where quote the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever unquote revelation 14:11. and the place where the devil who deceived god's people will be thrown and be tormented day and night forever and ever the infinite penalty, therefore, is identified simultaneously as 1. the hell of fire, 2. the eternal prison, 3. the lake of fire, and 4. the second death. And that's in Revelation 20.14. And in all this, we are not given the slightest indication that the wicked will be annihilated. In fact, as we have already shown, it would be unjust for God to annihilate the wicked, for this would imply that they have paid the infinite debt that they owe him, when in reality they have not, nor can they ever. In addition to the fact that men cannot be annihilated, lest God be guilty of injustice, which is sin, we must also note that when the demons speak of their final end, they equate it with torment, for which they use the word destruction as a synonym. For when Christ enters the Gadarenes in Matthew chapter 8, he's met by two demon-possessed men who shout at him, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Unquote. And in Mark's gospel, the demons shout out to him, saying, quote, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Unquote. Thus the fate of the demons is not annihilation. Rather, their fate is torment forever and ever. And if the devil and his angels are cast into the same eternal fire, the same hell of fire, the same eternal prison, and the same second death that the reprobate are cast into, then the reprobate likewise will suffer an eternity of torment from which there is no rest. So to restate this argument in syllogistic form, premise one, if the fate of the fallen angels is um excuse me will be actually will actually be torment forever and ever and the fate of the reprobate is the same then the fate of the reprobate is the fate of the reprobate will be will actually be torment forever and ever excuse me the fate of the fallen angels this is the second premise the fate of the fallen angels is actual torment forever and ever and the fate of the reprobate is the same therefore the fate of the reprobate will actually be torment forever and ever to recapitulate these are the reasons that i presented as to why the fate of the damned will actually be tormented forever and ever. And the first argument is the argument from the law of God. Premise 1 states that if God's law demands perfect obedience to its positive demands, as well as perfect retribution for any infraction thereof, and man can neither meet the positive demands of the law nor perfectly satisfy the punitive demands of the law, then man must continue to exist forever in order to receive the penalty due him as a lawbreaker. Premise 2 states excuse me, since God's law demands perfect obedience to his positive commands as well as perfect retribution for any infraction thereof, and man can neither meet the positive demands of the law of God nor perfectly satisfy the punitive demands of the law, then the conclusion follows, which is, therefore man must continue to exist forever in order to receive the penalty due him as a lawbreaker. My second argument is the argument from Infinite Debt. Premise 1 states that if one stay in prison is commensurate with the amount of debt that one owes, then one who has an infinite debt will remain in prison for an endless duration of time. One stay in prison is commensurate with the amount of debt that one owes. That's the second premise, and the conclusion is this. Therefore, one who has an infinite debt will remain in prison for an endless duration of time. And lastly, the third argument is the argument from the fate of the fallen angels. Premise one states that if the fallen angels, if they're <clears throat> excuse me. If their punishment will be, will actually be torment forever and ever, and the fate of the reprobate is the same, then the fate of the reprobate is the fate. Of, excuse me. The fate of the reprobate will be will actually be torment forever and ever. Premise two states that the fate of the fallen angels will actually be torment forever and ever, and the fate of the reprobate is the same. And the conclusion is therefore, the fate of the reprobate will actually be torment forever and ever. As I've mentioned at the beginning of my opening statement, there are profound soteriological consequences either affirming or denying tonight's resolution. And the, the consequences for denying tonight's resolution are as follows. In the first place, Christ's death becomes unnecessary. Because as I've already shown from the scriptures, retributive suffering from one's infractions of the law of God is a form of payment for one's sins. Therefore, the fate of the reprobate in hell is a form of payment for the debt that they owe to God. Yet if annihilationism or conditionalism is true, then it follows that man can indeed pay off the debt that he owes to God. And if he can pay off the debt that he owes to God, then Christ's death is unnecessary. However, however, the scriptures tell us that man cannot pay for his own sins. Therefore, his suffering must continue forever. Um, In the second place, the second consequence, I believe, that follows from denying tonight's resolution is that Christ's death is arbitrary. Because if an individual can pay for his own sins and, in a sense, merit the cessation of God's wrath, then it wasn't necessary for Christ to die for his people. And if it wasn't necessary for Christ to suffer the wrath of God for his people, then the death of Christ is an arbitrary means of paying the debt that they owe to God. And finally, in the third place, I believe that one of the consequences that follows from denying tonight's resolution is that Christ's death is not the only means of salvation from God's wrath. From this, from the other points that I've already stated, it follows that... um, There's not only one way for sinners to be saved from the active wrath of God, if I can put it that way. For if the death of Christ meets the law's punitive demands, and the annihilation of the reprobate meets the law's punitive demands, then men could choose to be annihilated in order to be saved from the wrath of God, or trust trust in Christ in order to be saved from the wrath of God. Well, when Chris comes on, I... I, Excuse me. Since this isn't the cross-examination part of the rebuttal part. I don't want to get too into the meaning of terms in Scripture, but I'll just touch on them briefly just to fill in my time here. Um, I believe that Chris is going to come from the same point that Edward Fudge comes from, and if that's the case, then I'm going to point out that death, for instance, in Scripture, doesn't mean what conditionalists think it means. Excuse me. Destruction doesn't either. Excuse me. And neither does consumption. These words are polysemous in nature, and they have multiple conno- connotative meanings, although they have a definite denotative meaning. And that's something else that's going to play into my part when I come on. But that's all I have for now. So if you're ready, Chris, I guess.
1: Okay, thank you, Hiram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had uh, six minutes left. Okay. Um, if you want to just conclude your time there, that's fine. And, uh, Chris, uh, you now have uh, 20 minutes for your opening, and you may begin whenever you're ready.
0: Okay, thank you, Mike, for agreeing to moderate today's debate, and I want to thank you, Hiram, for participating. Uh, I'll respond to your points in my rebuttal, but I obviously want to give a positive case, so I'm going to give mine now. But I want to begin by dispelling a couple of notions that you might have of me, both you and my listeners. First, I fully hold the orthodox essentials of the faith and other important doctrines. I believe in the Trinity, the deity and virgin birth of Christ, the total depravity of man and salvation by grace through faith alone, sola scriptura, the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, a Jehovah's Witness, or a member of any other questionable denomination. Second, I have no emotional or philosophical problem whatsoever with the idea of eternal conscious torment. Everlasting suffering has never seemed to me to be incompatible with the love and justice of God, nor does it today. I think God would be just in causing the wicked to suffer for eternity, but I also think God would be just in doing what I'll be arguing he'll do. The question is, what does Scripture say he'll do? My position is strictly exegetical, not emotional or philosophical. Now, I requested two slight modifications to the proposition originally suggested, which I'll emphasize now. The punishment of the damned will actually be torment forever and ever. I chose the word punishment because I will demonstrate that the Bible consistently describes the final punishment of the wicked as a final, irreversible, utter death and destruction of the whole person like that inflicted upon the body in the first death and not as torment forever and ever. And I chose the word actually because in the only places where torment and forever and ever are used together in connection with final punishment, it can't be demonstrated that anything, let alone the damned, are actually tormented forever and ever. But I will demonstrate that it is most reasonable to understand these passages as symbolically portraying torment which lasts forever, imagery intended to communicate the kind of destruction I just described. The view I'm defending today is this. When Christ returns, both righteous and wicked will rise bodily from the dead, the righteous will be granted immortality, and the wicked will be judged according to their deeds and punished by being killed a second time. Hence the phrase, the second death, used in Revelation. That killing will be one in which people justly suffer to varying degrees, but that suffering will last only until the one being killed is dead, after which point one will never live again. And when I say dead, I specifically mean dead in the sense of a dead body being dead, unconscious, unaware, inactive, truly life, uh, truly lifeless. They will not be capable of being tormented forever and ever. One last, last comment, and it's an important one. I don't think that this debate is one in which each side has biblical texts which favor it and others which must be reconciled with it. Rather, it seems to me that all the biblical data on the topic favors the position I'm defending today. I hope that sparks your interest. And with that, let's begin. Let's first take a look at what the Bible says is the nature of the final punishment. Jude assures his readers that the wicked will be punished and tells us in verse 7 that Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Of course, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the Bible records only their destruction and no torment in a short span of four verses in Genesis 19, after which Abraham awakes the next morning to look out at the smoke rising from its remains. No wonder that 2 Peter 2.6, likewise, uses their being destroyed and reduced to ashes as evidence that God will judge and punish sinners. So the punishment, inflicted by eternal fire, reduces to ashes. Some think it's the present suffering of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah in Hades which Jude has in view, but this isn't the case since a parallel in 2 Peter 2 specifically mentions their being reduced to ashes, and since the words Jude uses rendered example and exhibited don't allow for that. Example is the Greek diagma, which literally means thing shown, a showing. It means something more like specimen or exhibit. Similarly, exhibited is prochemai, which means to be placed before the eyes or to lie exposed. Now, if the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are presently suffering in an in- intermediate state, since their suffering there is never recorded anywhere in scripture, never shown, that is, then that cannot be the example of the or thing shown, which Jude has in mind. On the other hand, some people think that the word example may allow for some level of flexibility, Perhaps the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was like the punishment of eternal fire in some way, what in theological terms is called a type of eternal punishment, a prefigure or foretaste of what is to come. But again, digma means specimen or thing shown. And while the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah might be like torment forever and ever, it is not a specimen of torment forever and ever. And it is not a showing of torment at all. But their destruction is a specimen or showing of the punishment inflicted by hell if that punishment is destruction. This phrase eternal fire is used again in Matthew twenty five forty one, where Jesus says he will send those on his left into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So they will be destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. He calls this eternal punishment a few verses later, but before you assume that this supports torment forever and ever, consider this. The word rendered punishment refers to a penalty of death in the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel eighteen, thirty to thirty two, and in 2 Maccabees four thirty eight. The verb form of the word likewise refers to being killed in at least a couple of places in the Book of Wisdom and in Maccabees. And in many places in the Bible, the word eternal describes the duration of the result of a verb, like eternal salvation and eternal redemption in Hebrews 5.9 and 9.12, respectively. So eternal punishment is understood in a manner consistent with Jude as referring to the eternal death that results from the verb punish. Eternal fire is used again in Matthew 18.8, where Jesus says it's better to enter into life without a limb than to be cast into the eternal fire. The next verse says it's better to enter into life missing an eye than to be cast into Gehenna. Now look at the parallel passage in Mark 9. In verse 48, he says that in Gehenna, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Some think that this language supports the idea of torment forever and ever, forever and ever but it doesn't. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66, and the picture here is one of utter death and destruction. Verse 15 says the Lord's rebuke will come with flames of fire. Verse 16 says many will be slain. Verse 17 says the wicked will come to an end. And verse 24 says, the righteous will look out upon the carcasses of the wicked, whose worm will not die and whose fire will not be quenched. You see, the picture here is of a pile of lifeless, unconscious corpses, stinking, rotting, still being consumed by fire and maggots. And Jesus simply quotes this language, which describes Isaiah's scene, not anything that it foreshadows. It's worth noting that the text goes on to say of these carcasses that they will be loathsome to all mankind. That word loathsome does not describe the experience of the one who is loathsome, but how the loathsome one is perceived or remembered by others. The only other place in the Bible where this is used is in Daniel twelve two, where it says the wicked will rise to everlasting contempt, that word contempt being a translation of Isaiah's word loathsome, suggesting that they will rise to be slaughtered, never to live again. So what about unquenchable fire? Well, to quench means to forcibly extinguish. Isaiah one thirty one says there will be no one to quench the fire that burns up the strong man, having just said that sinners will come to an end, like a garden that dies for lack of watering. It doesn't mean a fire which burns fuel forever. It means a fire which no one can put out prematurely, which will consume until it's finished consuming. Undying worms, the parallel to the unquenchable fire, are worms which do not die prematurely and will consume until they finish consuming. So like Jude and Peter, who said that Sodom and Gomorrah served as a specimen of the punishment that awaits the wicked, Jesus quotes language describing a scene of slaughtered, rotting, rotting smoldering corpses, and says this is what hell will be like. Now let's take a closer look at Gehenna, mentioned in Mark 9:48. Gehenna was an actual place, and by using its name and pointing to final punishment, Jesus was bringing to the listener's mind what it is that happened in that real place called Gehenna. Gehenna in the Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew Valley of Hinnom. Jeremiah 7.32 says, days are coming when Topheth will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. So Gehenna became a place of utter death where scavenging beasts and birds will not be frightened away and prevented from fully consuming unconscious rotting corpses. Gehenna's former name, Topheth, means place of fire. Jeremiah 731 and other passages tell us it was a place where the idol worshippers sacrificed their children by fire. With that in mind, listen to this language from Isaiah 30. Burning is the Lord's anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. For Topheth has has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king of Assyria. He has made it deep and large, a pyre, and we'll come back to that in a second, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. Now that word pyre, P-Y-R-E in English, means a pile or heap of wood or other combustible material for burning a dead body. A funeral pyre. The one other place it's used is in Ezekiel 24, 9-10, to which reads, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great, heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, and mix in the spices and let the bones be burned. So, what was Gehenna? Well, it was once a place where idol worshippers burnt up children in fire, but the Lord turned it into a place of slaughter, and after he destroyed his enemies by fire the way they once destroyed their children, it would be a place of piles of rotting, stinking corpses being eaten up by animals, symbolized by a funeral pyre which burns corpses up. This is the image Jesus hearkened back to when he called the future state of the wicked Gehenna, and it fits the language of death and destruction used by Jude and Peter, but it doesn't fit torment forever and ever. Consider then what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now in light of James 2, 26's, the body without the spirit is dead. By hearkening to the first Gehenna where bodies were rendered lifeless and unconscious, Jesus tells us that both body and soul will be rendered lifeless and unconscious in the second Gehenna. It's no wonder, then, that the author of Hebrews also uses language which fits with that of Jude, Peter, Jesus, and the prophets. He says in Hebrews 10, 26, and 27 that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. But what does it mean for a fire to consume? Well, Exodus 3, 2 says the burning bush was burning with fire, but was not consumed. But look at what Isaiah 524 to 25 says about fire, which does consume. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so the root of the wicked will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. <laughs> Note yet again the rotting corpses imagery. You see, that God is a consuming fire, which will consume his enemies, means he will burn them up. He will destroy them, leaving only rotting, smoldering corpses behind. Now this phrase, unquenchable fire, is one that John the Baptist also uses in Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This image of separating wheat from chaff and burning up the chaff is one the Lord uses again in Matthew 13.42 and 50, when he explains the parable of the tares, saying of the tares that he will throw them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The important thing to keep in mind here is that John and the Lord didn't come up with this on their own. Malachi four one and three reads, For behold the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. So what does it mean to burn chaff up in a furnace of fire? <laughs> it means the wicked will be burnt up and reduced to ashes. Now, as a side note, some might be inclined to interpret one or more of these passages as referring to the then looming destruction of Jerusalem, an interpretation to which I'm sympathetic in at least some of these passages, but they each serve as a demonstration of what the punishment of God's unquenchable fire does. It burns up. It consumes. It it reduces to ashes. It destroys. Like Sodom and Gomorrah and the imagery of Gehenna as a place of slaughtered, smoldering corpses. The burning up of chaff fits well with hell as a place of final destruction, but it doesn't fit very well with uh, being tormented forever and ever. Now, one more thing before we look at torment forever and ever. Traditionalists often claim that the original words translated death and destroyed can carry other meanings like lost or ruined or corrupted, but note that mine has not been an argument from the meaning of these words or the original words they translate, although that argument could be put forth. Rather, this has been an argument from what Peter, Jude, Jesus, the author of Hebrews, John the Baptist, and the prophets all describe as a punishment inflicted by God's fire and which awaits the wicked in the final judgment. So no rebuttal based on the meaning of destroy or any other word is going to suffice to challenge what I presented. Now, let me shift gears and address this issue of torment forever and ever. The book of Revelation provides my opponent with what I think is the only thing even remotely resembling support for his position. So let's look at that alleged support. Revelation 149 to 11 reads if anyone worships the beast in his image he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name now before you assume this supports torment forever forever and ever consider this in chapter 17 the harlot mystery Babylon is a symbol of a city as explicitly stated by the angel in verse 18. And consider that in the next chapter, 18, verse 7, this symbol, the harlot, is tormented to a degree equal with her self-glorification. She's seen as tormented again in verse 10 and again in verse 15. But look at what verse 21 says with respect to the city she represents. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. So the personal symbol suffers torment, but the city that she represents is destroyed. And then look what the great multitude in heaven says in chapter 19, verse 3. Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So smoke of a personal symbol's torment rising forever communicates the final destruction of that which the symbol represents. And John is not coming up with this language himself. Listen to this language from Isaiah 34, 8-10, to describing the destruction of Edom. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. And the nature of the destruction is evident from verse 3's reference to the slain, whose corpses give off their stench. So John's language of the smoke of torment rising forever and ever and restlessness day and night, while may be compatible with eternal torment, is at least equally compatible with what I've argued, that they will be destroyed forever, just as Edom and the city represented by Mystery Babylon were destroyed forever, or will be in the case of your eschatology. Now, next, the traditionalists will turn to Revelation 20.10, which reads, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is the same lake of fire into which the wicked are shortly thereafter thrown. So doesn't this indicate that the fire does not consume and that the damned will be tormented forever and ever? Well, this is where that word actually comes into play that I asked to be included in the debate proposition. The book of Revelation is part of a biblical genre known as apocalyptic prophecy. This genre is highly symbolic, rich with vivid imagery. No Christian can reasonably deny this chapter 12 describes a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet the chapter goes on to describe a dragon whose tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and the chapter explains that the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth and then as i already mentioned mystery babylon in chapter 17 is described as a drunk harlot on a scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns This has just been a small sampling of the imagery employed in the revelation given to John. And like I said, no Christian, traditionalist or otherwise, can reasonably deny that this language is highly symbolic and has got to be interpreted very carefully. And as two millennia of church history has demonstrated, interpreting revelation is a very difficult challenge at times. But I do think that we have some clues as to what this symbolism of the lake of fire is meant to communicate. Remember that the symbolic torment of the harlot represents the final destruction of the city she represents. Consider also that chapter 20, verse 14, tells us that after they were emptied of the dead, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, death and Hades here do not symbolize the people formerly in them, since they have already been said to have given up their dead. Plus, 1 Corinthians 15 treats death as an enemy in and of itself, which will be abolished and swallowed up in victory. But death and Hades aren't real entities. They're abstract concepts, or at best, a non-physical place in the case of Hades. How can an abstract entity like death be thrown into a lake of fire or suffer torment at all? Well, quite obviously it can't, and yet the fate of being cast into the lake of fire and tormented has got to represent something. As, trad- as traditionalists are quick to argue, the meaning of being thrown into the lake of fire and tormented ought to be equally ap- applicable to the symbols thrown into it. That is to say, since the devil, wicked humans, and these abstract entities are all thrown into the same lake of fire, whatever that lake of fire represents, whatever punishment it inflicts, should be a fate that can be applied to all of them. Well, so what will happen to Death. Well, Revelation 21.4 says there will no longer be any death. And so as traditionalist A.T. Robertson put it, death will be no more. What will happen to the intermediate state? It will be no more. What happened to the city symbolized by the harlot when it was tormented in fire? It was no more. And so I think the symbolic language of torment forever is inconclusive at best, but likely was intended to communicate the same thing all the other passages that I've looked at communicated, death and destruction. Now, I'd like you to keep in mind during the course of this debate, one of the principles of biblical interpretation agreed upon by many, many theologians and biblical scholars, let clear passages illuminate those that are unclear. Consider how traditionalist G.K. Beale explains the imagery of the book of Revelation. Quote, Some comparative figures of speech are intended as visual pictures needing interpretation, while others are meant only to be perceived on a more abstract mental level. The latter usually occurs where a number of seemingly different visual pictures are combined. The collection of images makes visualization almost impossible or extremely awkward. The pictures are not to be mechanically harmonized into one big visual picture, but the interpretative ideas of each image are to be considered and related to one another. The purpose of the combination is to overwhelm the imagination and to express ideas that together transcend pictorial visualization, unquote. Now, does Beale's description of the book of Revelation, Re- Revelation suggest that it's the kind of clear passage with which we ought to illuminate the meaning of the unclear? Quite obviously not. But, using simple and straightforward language, Jesus, his apostles, and the prophets all described the punishment of God's fire as one of death and destruction, leaving only remains behind, And so it is with confidence that I deny the debate proposition. The punishment of the damned will most certainly not actually be torment forever and ever. But I want to end my opening by saying to you listening who have in the past rejected views similar to the one I've offered that I can completely understand and empathize with some of the reasons you may have done so. Justifiably, you fight against what you perceive to be a cheapening of the atonement. You admirably fight against the heresy that the wicked will not rise. You rightfully object to interpreting scripture through the lens of one's emotional aversion to eternal torment. I admire and applaud you for that, but the position I've presented doesn't make any of those errors or other errors to which you may have objected in the past. And so it is that I hope that you'll consider my position during today's debate with a mind open to understanding what it is that I'm suggesting and then testing it in light not of authority, but of the final, uh, sorry, not of tradition, but of the final authority. God breathed scripture. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Chris, for your opening. Hiram, uh, you have ten minutes for your rebuttal, and I will start your time whenever you're ready. Well, in the first place, I have to disagree with Chris
2: when he says that the meanings of words in this debate don't really... They won't come into a rebuttal of this position at all. I think that's just, that's really just sidestepping the issue. I mean, consider, he's repeating over and over and over again, death and destruction, death and destruction. Well, what do those terms mean? In the first place, death does not signify extinction at all, anywhere in scripture. There's no place where it shows that. Excuse me. And, we can go back as early as Genesis chapters 2 and 3 excuse me let's consider Adam for instance if God cannot lie then Adam necessarily died on the very day that he ate of the fruit in the garden and since Paul describes unredeemed men as being dead in their sins and there are other passages that support this interpretation as well it's evident that spiritual death signifies neither extinction nor cessation of activity or in consciousness, if you put it that way as a spiritually dead creature, for instance, Adam knew that his condition, he knew what his condition was before God. He knew that it changed. He knew that his behavior was shameful. He knew that his condition w- itself was something to be ashamed of. He knew God's word regarding his sin. He could hear God's word. He could, he could hear God walking in the garden. He knew God's presence and he hid from God's presence. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he covered his shame. He covered his sin. It was, a false atonement it was a false covering but it was a covering nonetheless it was a religious activity so spiritual spiritual death in the case of Adam doesn't mean unconsciousness at all it doesn't mean extinction it doesn't point to annihilation or anything of the sort that's why the words in this debate are very important <clears throat> excuse me now I would ask chris tonight to <clears throat> excuse me I would ask chris tonight to explain how it is that quote unquote the second death mentioned in revelation two eleven twenty six Excuse me, 20 verse 6, 20 verse 14, and 21 to 8 means extinction if, in the first place, scripture doesn't identify spiritual death or physical death as extinction of any sort. And B, the book of Revelation is not to be taken literalistically. Like he was saying, he was going over, excuse me, the genre of the book of Revelation, how it's apocalyptic literature, and how it needs to be interpreted in that way. Well, the problem is this. How is the torment of the devil and his angels, etc., how is that interpreted symbolically by Chris? But the second death is interpreted literally. It's an inconsistent hermeneutic that makes, it makes a mess of scripture. And there are numerous places where that that happens. Excuse me. And so I, I still do believe that the meanings of words are very important here because the, the position that he's holding to depends on the denotative meaning of those words. But there are connotative meanings to the words that are used. The question tonight isn't therefore whether or not I believe the wicked will experience the second death, and it's not whether or not I believe the wicked will be destroyed forever and ever, or whether or not I believe that there will be no more. Rather, it's largely a question of hermeneutics. Are we to understand that these terms always signify the same thing? Are we to neglect considerations of the ramifications of address, excuse me, of not addressing the fact of progressive revelation? And if you notice, Chris, by sidestepping the issue of the meaning of words, And the polysemous nature of of these words, like death and destruction, Chris said that my rebuttal, if it dealt with the word, the meaning of the words wouldn't wouldn't do anything to his case. But he goes to the process that's described by them, by the prophets and by Christ, by Malachi, by Christ, by John the Baptist, Jude, etc. But the problem with this is that that's a flattening out of typological progressive revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if that's the case for the final end of the wicked, then it has to apply consistently to the final end of the righteous as well. I mean, consider the fact of Isaiah 66, where the worm doesn't die, etc., etc. The problem with Edward Fudge's interpretation and the interpretation that Chris presents tonight is that if we want to read Scripture that way, then we can talk about the New Jerusalem as being a place where there won't be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die, Isaiah says, a hundred years old, and the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now, what's a sinner doing in the New Jerusalem? If we're going to read scripture flattening out the typological progressive revelation that's there, then I ask Chris to, to make sense of this for me. That, to me, represents a huge inconsistency that, again, it makes the scriptures incomprehensible um consider again uh <clears throat> excuse me Isaiah 34 that he quoted from this doesn't show extinction or annihilation or complete consumption and at least consumption in the way that annihilationists and conditionists define it you go to verses um, 13 for instance and it says thorns shall grow over its stronghold, and nettles and thistles in its fortresses it shall be at the haunts of jackals and abode for ostriches and wild animals shall meet with hyenas the wild goat shall cry to his fellow, and indeed the night bird settles and, re- and finds for itself a resting place, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not annihilation. That is a place of ruination. It's a place a place of desolation. It's a place of disgust, contempt. But that's not annihilation, and I don't find that convincing at all. I and mean, I think anyone who's reading through these passages in their entirety will see that that's not the case. <clears throat>
0: Excuse
2: me. Now, regarding the angels, Christ tells the Sadducees that in the resurrection, men and women will be raised from the dead, and they will be like angels in two ways. In the first place, they won't marry or reproduce, and in the second place, they won't die. Now, if angels don't die, and in this context, death has a specific reference to the cessation of bodily existence, then neither the righteous nor the wicked will cease to exist bodily, for the devil and all the demons of hell are still, nevertheless, angels, and angels don't die. Therefore, it must be noted that if the ontological status of men and angels in the age to come is the same regarding the eternality of their bodies and souls, then conditionalism is ipso facto false. I've already pointed out that the demons, when they speak of their final end, equate torment with destruction, and I just don't see any way around that. These words are being used interchangeably to describe an eternal suffering. And so... I believe that the conditionalist case, as I've, I've tried to make clear tonight, I don't know if I have or not, but I'm, I'm trying to make that case as clearly as possible. Um, I believe the conditionalist position rests upon a very faulty hermeneutic, and I'm not associating Chris with cult members or anything like that, and or or Edward Fudge or any other conditionalist in that manner. But the way that they read scripture is very similar, and um, excuse me, and I'll just quote Dr. Robert Mori, who speaks about how we're supposed to read scripture, basically. Um, he says that the entirety of God's revelation was given to humanity in a single instant excuse me. But was dispersed in different ways to people over several thousand years. And he he's talking about progressive revelation here. And he says the progressive character of revelation can also be stood understood in in terms of a gradual unfolding of biblical truths, which began quite vague, but slowly, little by little, came to be understood in absolute clarity. And Daryl Bach Professor Darrell Bach says the same thing about progressive revelation. He says it more concisely, and he says, God progressively discloses his plan throughout history. This means that the force of earlier passages in God's plan becomes clearer and more developed as more of the plan is revealed in later events and texts. This increase in clarity often involves the identification of new reference, to which the initial reference, excuse me, typologically point forward. And this is the problem that I see with conditionalism. Apart from having to move Apart from having to make some of the moves that Chris has already made tonight, trying to avoid the meaning of words, <clears throat> excuse me, sidestepping issues like that, it's that conditionalism flattens out both propositional progressive revelation and typological progressive revelation. By flattening out propositional revelation, it does this when Edward Fudge, for instance, says that Psalm 2 speaks of the wicked being shattered to pieces and that. That somehow supports annihilationism. He flattens out the meaning of that imagery by saying that the fate that's described for them in Psalm 2 is the same that's going to, it's equivalent to the eschatological fate that awaits them. And that's a complete undermining of progressive revelation.
1: That's time. Okay. Thank you, Hiram. Uh, Chris, you now have ten minutes for your rebuttal, and I'll start your time whenever you're ready.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, the first thing I want to respond to is uh, what I think was the, g- the gist of Hiram's opening argument, which is that uh, the infinite, basically it's the infinite sin, or the finite Sin against an infinitely holy God requires an infinite amount of uh, uh, punishment. Now, I actually agree with that. I don't disagree at all. The problem with Hiram's case is that he assumes without establishing that the only kind of uh, penalty that can uh, be paid for that is suffering. That is exactly where our difference uh resides. I happen to think that uh the finite sins against an infinitely holy God does require an infinite punishment. I just happen to think that punishment is a death which lasts forever, which satisfies all of the demands that um Hiram mentioned. Now he did point to Matthew five, twenty-six and Luke twelve, fifty-seven to fifty nine, which speak of prison and, and he tried to make the claim, I was actually kind of surprised, that these passages talk about um uh, about wi- the wicked in prison, eschatologically speaking, the problem is, I think, if, if anybody looks at those passages, they'll see that the, the the place where the people are being thrown into prison is here on earth prior to the eschatological judgment. I mean, Matthew five twenty six says, uh, or twenty five says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law, so that that opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Uh, truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you pay the last cent. This is an earthly sentencing that he's saying to avoid by making friends with your opponent at law. So it's really irrelevant. Now, in um, cross-examination, we might look at another parable about prison, uh, but we'll come to that. Um, Let's see here. He, he made the argument that infinite debt uh, requires an infinite duration in prison and that the punishment cannot come to an end, uh, and therefore, uh, for God to be just, he cannot annihilate you. I've simply demonstrated that's false, because that presumes that the only kind of punishment for sin is suffering. Now, he mentioned the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Um, the parable does seem to fit quite nicely with eternal torment, except, of course, in the parable, the servant is either going to be freed once he's paid his debt or die in prison, never able to fully pay his debt. Now, since we're not universalists, neither of us are going to be inclined to think that Jesus' pointing in, uh, that Jesus's point in using the parable was that the unforgiving will be tormented for a while until their debt is paid off. Uh, we also agree that the wicked can never pay off their debt. And so neither of us can really take the parable entirely literally. My opponent must say that while the parabolic servant will die in prison, in reality, the wicked will never cease being tormented. And I must say that while the parabolic servant's torment seems to be the penalty owed, in reality, the wicked will pay the penalty of death. I don't think either of us have the upper hand when it comes to this parable. You know, there are there's some clear takeaways from this parable that I think my opponent and I can, can agree upon. We all owe a debt. We can't pay that debt on our own. And if we are not forgiving, thus lacking the fruit of having been regenerated, then we will never be, uh, then we will not be able to escape the penalty of that debt. But such, as the, such is the case with every parable Jesus used. Uh, I think it would be a huge mistake to try and find the real-life meaning behind every single detail within the parable. And even many of my Reformed brethren make the exact same point with other parables like the prodigal son. So we have to look at what the Bible says elsewhere with regard to the nature of final punishment and not rely upon questionable interpretations of this one particular parable. Now, with regards to uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-one, uh, as I've already pointed out, the eternal fire into which they've been thrown is uh, clearly um, destruction in Jude and not the kind of destruction that Hiram has talked about, and we'll talk about meanings of words in a second since that came up, but a complete leveling to ashes, including the, the destroying of um, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were redu- reduced to remains. Um, so I actually think, as I said in my opening, that this passage along with every other passage actually supports the view that I've um, argued for rather than working against it. Um, he said that, uh, and as far as the, the torment of angels is concerned, in Matthew 8 and other passages, he said that uh, torment is used as a synonym of, uh, synonym of destruction. It's interesting to me that he chooses, I think arbitrarily, to assume that it's the torment which is being, uh, which is the real meaning for which destruction is a synonym. Um, I could just simply make the reverse argument and say that the torment is the synonym for destruction. I don't actually have to do that, however. Um, if we look at the issue of the torment of angels, um, one certainly may be inclined to assume that their future, future eternal torment in the lake of fire is what they're referring to. Of course, no mention is made of eternal torment. That's something that Hiram's reading into the text. But still, when we're still wearing our eternal torment colored glasses, this connection makes sense. But if we do just a little bit of research, we'll soon discover that this is not likely the case at all. For one thing, in a similar account, uh, in Mark 1 and Luke 4, like I said, he, the, the angels don't ask to be, uh, if, if Jesus has come to torment them. He's, he asks if they've come to, they ask if he's come to destroy them. Now, this suggests to me that if what they anticipated was their final judgment, whatever torment they anticipated was something they associated with their coming destruction. Of course, since destroy means something else to traditionalists, that alone isn't enough to rebut the argument from these passages. But second, in the parallel account in Mark 5.8 and Luke 8.29, both gospel authors record that the reason the demons asked if Jesus had come to torment them was because he had commanded them to come out of the man. It seems that the torment to which they refer is not the eternal torment in the lake of fire, but the torment of being cast out of their host and sent to wherever they would be sent. And as Luke further clarifies in Luke 8.31, they didn't want to be cast into the abyss. And whatever it is, the abyss is not the lake of fire, since it's not until after Satan is released from the abyss that he is subsequently thrown into the lake of fire. And since in Romans 10, Paul connects descending into the abyss with raising Christ from the dead. So we don't have any good reason at all to believe that these demons expected one day to face torment for eternity in the lake of fire. Now, we could speculate until the cows come home about what the abyss is and what happens there and why it is that the demons objected to being sent there before their time. Uh, as an orthodox preterist and as an amillennialist, I believe the binding of Satan in the abyss in Revelation 20 is a present reality, and perhaps the demons objected to being sent there before Satan, or perhaps the abyss to which they refer is the Tartarus of 2 Peter 2, where demons are held in pits of darkness awaiting the final judgment. Either way, there simply is no good reason to think that these accounts tell us that an eternity of torment awaits demons or anybody else. Now, uh, let's see here. He, Pyre mentioned that there were some profound implications, um, uh, soteriological implications. He, he, his first and second point, um, and actually third one, are all related, that Christ's death was unnecessary, arbitrary, and um, is not the only means of salvation from God's wrath uh, if annihilationism is true. That just it simply reflects a misunderstanding of annihilationism. Um, and this is, it's, it's understandable. Traditionalists oftentimes make this mistake. They, they think that what annihilationists are saying is that, uh, they are paying retributive suffering and then that retributive suffering finishes and they die. Um, the problem is that's not our view. Our view is that while there might be some suffering involved in the destructive process, it's the destruction itself, the death itself, which lasts forever, that is the payment. So all of those soteriological implications simply disappear. They, they simply don't apply to my view. Um, now, one more thing, um, Let's see here. He mentioned, he, he objected in his rebuttal to my claim that his rebuttal wouldn't suffice if it was based on the meaning of words. Now actually, he, he misunderstood what I was saying. Um, first of all, I wasn't sidestepping or avoiding the meaning of those words. I have a whole rep- uh, rebuttal um, prepared if we want to get into the meaning of destroy and, and death and stuff like that. What I said was that because my argument relied upon descriptions a final judgment rather than individual words used, um, more would have to be done than simply appeal to the meaning of those words. Um, so that simply doesn't apply to me. Now, he argued that death uh, means something other than extinction. Um, I don't actually agree. First of all, in Genesis, uh, yes, Adam is said to have died. But many traditionalist interpreters understand that what happened was he entered into death. Death, he began to die. And this is the kind of language that is oftentimes used when speaking of death. It, it, people are dead presently because they're on their way to death. Um, but even if they are, the, the, the point, the, the more powerful point, I think, is that th- we're not I think we need to be careful not to simply assume that the first death is going to be identical to the second one. Um, The first death is uh one of only the body, according to James 2.26 and according to Matthew 1028. But the second death is a body of uh, the second death is one of both body and soul, according to Matthew 1028. Now oftentimes it's argued that death is separation of soul from, from spirit in the first death. Well that's fine. But it's not the spirit that dies in that view. It's particularly in the case with the righteous, the, the saved. The spirit doesn't die, it's the body that dies, and James 26 makes that clear. But the spirit lives on. So if both body and soul are separated from God who obviously lives on, then both spirit and body die. So the death of separation argument, none, none of that applies to my, to my case. Now, he asked me to explain how the second death, um, I, I wasn't quite sure what he asked me to do. He may have to cross-examine me on that. But, I, but, I, but he did point to a seeming inconsistency in my case that I was interpreting some things symbolically and others not. Well, I'm just following the language of Revelation. Um, it, frequently, John or the angels that talk to John um, tell him what a symbol means. Uh, in Revelation seven, uh, seventeen eighteen, uh, the angel tells John that the woman you saw is the great city. Well, what does the angel tell John in Revelation twenty fourteen? Uh, the lake of fire is the second death. So this is an interpretation of the symbolism. I'm just following the same the same hermeneutic. I'm following this. I'm, I am being consistent. Um, the last thing that I want to address, because I don't have much time, is this issue of hermeneutics and progressive revelation. I'm completely open to the possibility that New Testament authors and the Lord himself expanded upon Old Testament imagery. Show me where they do that. They don't. They just quote it. In Mark 9:48, Jesus simply quotes Isaiah's language. What indication is there that there's something that the language is expanded upon to mean something uh, greater, something more than what Isaiah had communicated? Show me anywhere where that's the case. Uh, Matthew twenty five forty one, the eternal fire language, um, Jude just says that's, that was what punished Jude, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and then he qu- quotes, uh, uh, and then he says eternal punishment, which I'm sure we're going to get into. So anyway, uh, I don't think that any of Hiram's points have, have been persuasive, and I look forward to cross-examination. Thank you.
1: Okay, Chris, uh, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Hiram.
0: Thank you. Um, Hiram, the first question I have for you has to do with the issue of progressive revelation. Like I said, I don't, I don't deny progressive revelation at all. Can you show me anywhere where New Testament authors uh, appeal to Old Testament language uh, like, that, that that, like that that I've quoted and expand upon its meaning?
2: Um, specifically, right now, no, because my computer's slow. <laughs> um, but I would just point to the whole book of Revelation. I think that's a strong enough case right there. I mean, John uses image upon image upon image taken from the Old Testament, and we understand that he's not using them literalistically, if you can say that. We understand that he's expanding upon what's there. You use, um, excuse can, me. can
0: you give me an example of where in Revelation he expands upon that imagery that he appeals to?
2: Um, temple imagery, where...
0: Excuse me. I'm talking about the, the torment in the lake of fire.
2: Okay. Well, not if it's my head right now, no.
0: Okay. How do you interpret Revelation 2014s saying that after they were emptied of the dead, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire? What happens to death and Hades?
2: Death and Hades are taken away from... Well, I don't know how to put this. Let's see. Death will be no more. Hades Great. will be no more. Okay. But for,
0: now, in Revelation uh, 17 through 19... Yep. Um, the great harlot, do you agree that that's a symbol for the city? Yeah. And do you agree that this, the personal symbol that is the harlot is tormented? Yep. What happens to the city? Not sure. Okay. Uh, how would you interpret the angel's statement at the end of chapter 18 that um, that as this great stone was uh, thrown into the sea, so too will the city not be found any longer?
2: I would interpret it as meaning... maybe. Excuse me, as reflecting the same sort of language that's used, let's say in Psalm 37, where the psalmist says, "You'll look for the wicked, but there'll be no more." I don't think he's saying that they'll be annihilated. What he's saying is, he, he's speaking from the perspective of the believers, and I think that's the same case that's happening in the Book of Revelation as well.
0: Okay, but I, I was talking about the city. What, what, what happens to the city that she represents? Are you saying that the city that Babylon, uh, Mystery Babylon, represents, exists in some sort of a ruin for eternity?
2: no I okay
0: don't. so um so I think that uh, i've pretty well established you can you can press me when it 's your turn to cross examine I think I've pretty well established that the torment that John appeals to is uh, symbolism for destruction. Uh, the next thing that I want to turn to let 's see here um can you explain? There was something I didn't understand, and, and this I was frantically typing out notes, and so I, I missed what it is that you asked me to explain with regards to Isaiah's language about New Jerusalem. Can, can you clarify that for me?
2: Sure. Um, excuse me. I know that Fudge made this claim, and he was on your show and elsewhere, and other people too. Um, and you pointed to it as well, using or basically saying, "Well, Christ points to Isaiah." 66 and he doesn't expand on it he just quotes it and just you know and and what's contained in isaiah 66 concerning the fate of the wicked is what christ is repeating okay but the problem for me is that isaiah 66 is eschatological isaiah 65 is eschatological and in isaiah 65 which i quoted he speaks about infants he speaks about the wicked living a long
0: specific verse
2: sure let me uh
0: get to it right now i don't have an encyclopedic (laughs) memory of the bible so i i've I've got to look it up on the fly yeah, I understand.
2: Let's see. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17. You can start there. I'll just read it. Uh, For behold, I create a new heaven. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the form of things shall not be remembered or come into mind. <clears throat> but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Let's see. No more. Excuse me. I'll just skip down. No, you know what?
0: I, I, think, I, uh-huh. I think I get it. Uh, verse twenty. Okay. No longer will there be an, an infant, and then an italics, who li- an infant of a few days, or yes. an old man who does not live out his days. So, are you really mm-hmm. suggesting that in the new, in the eschatological New Jerusalem, there will be infants who die?
2: No, I'm not. Okay. That at all. Uh,
0: do you think that there are any? There are going to be old men who live out uh, the finality of their days; that they live out the rest of their life, so to speak. Or do, you, do you think there will be old men at all in the eschatological New Jerusalem?
2: No. Could I make it okay.
0: clear? Well, hold. Clear. Yeah, I, I'll let you. But really quick, I just want to point okay. out that that seems to be to be perfectly consistent with what Isaiah says. No longer will there be an, an infant or an old man. So anyway, go ahead. What were we going to say? Oh, for for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Uh, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the ESVE has it as the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And see, the problem with with the literal interpretation and and that transferring to the New Testament for me is it's not my problem. It's a problem for conditionalism. If you take Isaiah 66 to be a literal literal destruction in the sense that you interpret the word destruction, then you have to in order to have a consistent hermeneutic, you need to explain this. In what sense is this literal? And I know it's not my time to ask you questions, but I'm just saying that's that's where I'm coming from.
0: No, I I completely understand. Um, If it says that, uh, first of all, I think that, um, I'm not suggesting that every detail of uh, these passages ought to be taken literally. I'm suggesting that um, there's nothing in the passage which uh, we're given any reason in the New Testament to take something beyond literally, at least in the passages that are quoted. I don't think there's anywhere in the New Testament where verse 20 of Isaiah 65 is quoted. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So I'll look forward in cross-examination uh, to an example of somewhere where the New Testament authors do that. In the meantime, I think that my um, appeal to Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four remains intact, since all it describes when it talks about a worm die- never dying and unquenchable fire is corpses. Um, now, let me see if I can look at something else. Um, in Matthew 3.12, 13.40 and Luke 3.17 uh, hearkening back to Malachi when Jesus says that the wicked will be burned up like chaff in a, of fu- a verse, uh, furnace of fire. He uses a verb katakayo, which literally means to burn down to nothing or burn up completely in contrast with a generic burning of sorts. Um, now, I know that you said that consume doesn't always mean consume. I would dispute that when it's in regards to fire. But h- how does this apply, this katakayo language and being burned up like chaff in a furnace of fire? How does this apply to the final punishment if the wicked are never burned up completely?
2: Well, it, implies figure- it, it applies figuratively.
0: How so? How, how how does figurative coming to an end mean uh, literal uh, in these in these passages at least imply literal uh, burning forever?
2: Because when we speak about the the final end of the wicked, there are numerous images that are used. It's not just fire. Do There's any of the, them
0: communicate the um, the never-ending suffering?
2: I believe so. Yeah. Um in, in Jude, where Jude speaks about the eternal blackness darkness forever.
0: Uh, ah, okay. No, that's that's mm-hmm. actually good. So, on, on what reason do you have for interpreting the blackness in Jude um, as uh, conscious existence forever?
2: Because Jude is describing the state that the individuals are currently in, and you see it throughout the book. I mean, he says, "Woe to them, for they have perished." Past tense in the way of Balaam.
0: Okay, but I, was, I, was, I was asking about before. the blackness of Jude, though.
2: I know, and I'm I'm I'm
0: explaining. Okay, I apologize
2: that this is cumulative. You know, I'm not just going to pull one verse out and and try to give you a breakdown of it without considering the fact that it's in a context. You know what I mean? I understand. So so the way that Jude uses the blackness and darkness forever, he's speaking the present condition of of these false teachers. And it's a darkness that lasts
0: forever. Sorry, you're... Forever and
2: they're wandering stars. To me, when that applies to an individual, there's movement, there's motivity. So, Mm mm-hmm. Um,
0: no, I'm here. You, you cut out for a second. Um, let's see. I've got a minute and a half left. I want to pull up that passage in Jude really quick. I had taken some notes about what uh, blackness actually means. Um, Job uses blackness to to ask that uh, um, that the day of his birth would uh, go into darkness, um, and he's talking. He, he was. He's praying. He is asking that the day had never happened. So I'm not convinced uh, that what you're saying about the the blackness of darkness in any way suggests ongoing. Um, existence i think that what you're pointing to though um let me can you show me where the specific verse is in oh here it is wild waves of sea casting up the foam of their own shame Uh, so here's the interesting thing it says wandering Mm -hmm. stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever Mm -hmm. there's nothing there i don't understand what what you see in the text indicates that they're in the gloom of utter darkness right now
2: well like i said i believe he's describing a current state and
0: can you justify that
2: Yeah, like I said, I was trying to, I was trying to build up cumulatively, however failingly I did that, but he's, for instance, in verse 5, he, not verse 5, I'm sorry, let's see. I'm sorry, I'm trying to find my place. That's right. Okay, verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves. For the sake of gain to Malam's error and perished in Korra's Rebellion. It's past tense, but he's speaking about a present condition that's ongoing. He doesn't...
0: Um. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to come back to that in my next round of cross-examination because okay. uh, I don't have enough time, so I'll hand them the proverbial microphone over to you.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, Hiram, you now have ten minutes to cross-examine Chris.
2: Okay. Okay, uh, Chris. In Mark nine forty-four through forty-eight, I have a question about what's being said there. Is Christ speaking literally when he speaks of going to heaven without the member of one's body that has caused one to sin? No. Okay. Okay. Is the second death annihilation.
0: Uh, I believe so. Yes. Why? Because of the numerous passages that I pointed to, uh all of which describe the final punishment as a death, a death of which which goes back to what I claimed, which you can dispute if you like that that you've misunderstood what annihilation annihilationism says I'm not suggesting that the second death is the uh poofing out of existence um in in some sort of a uh, metaphysical sense i think they'll I think they're going to die, and I think that that's what the second death is that's right.
2: Could you define the word death for me, what it means to die, what it means
0: to be dead? Yeah, well, James 2.26 makes that pretty clear. He says that the body, uh, without the spirit is dead. Um, and, uh, Matthew, uh, in, in Matthew 10.28, Jesus says that what the first death can only do to the body, uh, will happen to both body and soul. At least that's the way I interpreted it. So, uh, so I think that death is defined as lifelessness. Now, I think that it entails separation, uh, separation from fo- soul from spirit in the first death, but there's some marked differences between the first death and the second. Okay
2: well the, I have a problem with your definition of death as it it sounds circular to me it sounds are you saying that death is the absence of life mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't really define death for me
0: okay how can you
2: um, um okay so here's here's the problem how does christ define life eternal life for instance in John seventeen uh
0: well I think that he gives uh one definition of eternal life in that passage mm-hmm. he defines it as knowing the one true God I don't have the passage right in front of me what was the verse again mm- mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have to find it, but it, that is what he says. So.
0: Okay, yeah. So I mean, I, I, but but see, that isn't the word death. That's the word life. A uh, life, and what's more is, like you yourself said, I think that words can have multiple meanings, and I don't at all think that eternal life simply means uh, an eternity of knowing. Christ, I think that it means an eternity of being alive. After all, when Genesis, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were uh, no longer allowed to eat from the fruit, uh, he began to die. He, he was no longer uh, he, he was he he was not granted immortality. But Revelation in in uh, Revelation 22 says that the the saved will have access to the tree of life. So I think eternal eternal life means more than simply uh, knowing God forever.
2: Okay. Are death and destruction synonymous terms of judgment?
0: Uh, Not necessarily. Um, I think that uh, to destroy might carry some increased connotations. I mean, for example, in Matthew 10, 28, uh, Jesus says that the body is killed in the first death, but then he uses uh, destroy to refer to what happens to body and soul, Um, particularly in hearkening back to Gehenna where bodies were killed. Uh, but the souls lived on, I think that to destroy body and soul would mean to do more than simply kill, but, but to burn up, to reduce to remains, to reduce to ashes, as uh, numerous passages that I pointed to indicate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, considering the fact that Christ says that angels don't die, and we know from Hebrews 1 that angels are spirits,
0: mm-hmm.
2: could you explain to me,
0: yeah, absolutely. Just um, what's going on there? I, I had hoped to get to that in my uh second re- or my rebuttal but unfortunately I ran out of time. Um it, it the uh let me pull what I had prepared up because I'm familiar with this argument. Um here it is. So, yeah, Jesus says that the that the righteous will uh, cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. Um, and of course, you're trying to argue that this means angels and by extension, demons are incapable of dying and therefore Satan and his demons will actually be tormented forever since they won't be capable of dying. Uh, you know, the, the problem is I think it's pretty clear that the angels in view there are not in fact demons. Uh, for one thing, the word translated angels, uh, more literally, or the word, the phrase translated like the angels more literally means equal to the angels. And I seriously doubt that either of us would suggest that believers will be made equal to Satan and the demons. But more, more importantly, the word translated angel is used well over a hundred Hundred fifty times, and the vast majority of those times it refers specifically to holy angels, uh, referring to demons fewer than ten times. And then finally, in the parallel account in Matthew 22, 30, Jesus calls them the angels in heaven, which still further suggests that only holy angels in view. So I don't think that angels are inherently uh, immortal. I think that the holy angels are immortal.
1: Okay. How much time do we have left? Oh, you have a little over five minutes left.
2: Okay. Um, so how would you understand... God's statement to Adam that on the very day that he and that's that's my paraphrasing of it, but on the very day that you eat the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. How yeah, do you understand that.
0: I would respond by saying that's actually not what the text says. The text literally says, "Dying, you shall die." And I think that um what's uh, very clear from both the context and from the meaning of that phrase is that what happened is that Adam began. To die, um, and uh, even traditionalist interpreters have uh, um, have have understood it in in the same way. Um, if I if you want, I can try to look through my notes to find the particular interpreters that I mentioned. But like I said, I interpret it to me that he began the process of death, uh, not that he died at that moment, which is perfectly compatible with dying. You shall die.
2: Yeah, it is. Um... Excuse me. <coughs> So, if that's the case, then, how do you understand spiritual death?
0: Well, uh, I think that when, when, uh, when humans are described as being dead presently spiritually, mm-hmm. um, I think that what's being described there is certainly not the lifelessness of, of the soul. Uh, I think that what's being described, I, I think that we're called dead because we're as good as dead. We're, in fact, on our way to death, and when we pass from death into life, I don't mean, think it means that our spirit uh, b- becomes alive in that sense. I think that it means we've entered in eternal life. We'll never, uh, we'll never face a second death. We've been, we've escaped the second death.
2: Okay. So you would see the let's say. So, I guess the the problem that I have with your position, one one of the many problems, is when we con- consider the fact that Paul says that we're spiritually dead prior to can version right i actually don't don't think he
0: uses that exact phrase but if you want to point to a specific of of
2: course he doesn't use that exact phrase i mean not to be pedantic or anything but we know what the passage says he says and you likewise you you know who were once dead in your sins etc um ephesians chapter 2 colossians chapter 2 etc paul describes the unregenerate man as being dead in his sins right he's spiritually dead so what does christ mean when he says the body and soul will be destroyed in
0: hell well, he doesn't use "dead" there or "kill"; he uses "destroy." Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, he harkens back to the first Gehenna, where the death that's in view is clearly the rendering lifeless the body uh, and not the soul. So, um, yeah, I, I don't see how uh, Matthew ten twenty-eight at all helps you out it 's interesting when when Ronnie debated Turton fan, this was the most amazing thing that a lot of people pointed out. Ronnie asked turton fan uh, Turton fan is the traditionalist in that in that debate what destroy means there, and uh, Turton's fan just said, "Oh, it just means whatever happens in in hell um, I don't think that that's uh, a good approach to doing exegesis I think that um, <laughs> I think that we need to define what's going on there and I think that like I said where the first death just kills the body the second death uh, destroys renders completely unlifeless, uh, lifeless lifeless and, and burns up to ashes both body and soul granted though a soul cannot be literally burned but I think that the same concept can apply
1: okay um, do I have times oh, there. you have two minutes
2: left okay um, In Revelation 26, John contrasts the fate of the wicked.
0: I don't think there is a Revelation 26. Do you mean 22?
2: 20, verse 6.
0: Oh, I apologize. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah.
2: In Revelation 20, verse 6, just to be clear, yeah. um, John contrasts the fate of the wicked, the second death, with the fate of the righteous, which is their being priests unto God. Okay? Mm-hmm. If the second death is literal, then the priesthood must also be taken literally. But there is no need for a priesthood once this age is fully passed, for priests serve as mediators between men and God, and yet in the age to come, all believers will enjoy a perfect communion with God, and unbelievers won't enjoy that perfect communion with him. Mm-hmm. Upon what exegetical basis do you interpret the second death literally, and yet interpret the eternal priesthood of all of God's elect people as figurative?
0: I interpret the priesthood of all believers as a present reality, um, and I don't think it's because we are... Uh um priests in the literal sense of the Old Covenant, I think that there's a, a sense in which we are priests now, we we have direct access to the uh, New Jerusalem's Holy of Holies, I think that that's a present reality and I don't think that we'll ever cease having access, a direct access to God so I do in a sense take that literally just not in the Old Testament sense of a priest I take it to mean that we will forever have access to God
2: yeah, But doesn't priesthood also involve sacrifices of praise for instance uh, sacrifice of thanksgiving
0: uh-huh, and I think we'll forever be thanking and praising God. Okay. I'm actually, I'd be quite surprised to hear somebody suggest that we're not.
2: Well, I, I guess, am I, I think I hear feedback on my end. Um, what I should have asked, rather, is, as priests before God, as as a priest to God, do we not also mediate for men? Isn't that part and parcel of being a priest before God?
0: Um... I don't know. I've never I've never seen, uh, or at least I don't recall ever seeing, a place where New Testament believers, uh, the priesthood of all believers, is is, is mediating between God and man. I, I thought that only Christ could mediate between God and man.
1: That's fine.
0: Okay, that was part one of my debate with Hiram Diaz on the nature of hell. Take a break, um, catch a breather, <laughs> catch your breath, and join me in the next episode in the feed for part two of the debate, episode 71. Until then...